test to see if people are sitting down, which they're not. Good morning, everybody. Hello. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. I see a few new faces. Thank you for visiting here with us. And I'm super excited because today we have a guest who is here to preach, Pastor Trin Peterson. Can you give her a round of applause? And um, I just want to take a quick minute to, to explain why, why Trin is here because it's not just because I wanted a break or Pastor Michael wanted a break, although that is nice. Um, Pastor Trin's here with some members of her community, Eden community. Wave, Eden people. I see a few of you here, so welcome to Mill City Church. Eden is a brand new church plant that's going to be starting this fall in Coon Rapids. And so if any of you know some folks who are out that way, or maybe you're out that way, man, this is an opportunity for you to support something that I believe God is doing. I've known Trin for a while now, and I really believe that God has put this community, not only in her heart, but in the hearts of many who are a part of the beginning of this church, and Pastor Sarah, who's here as well, and their husbands, which just tripled our amount of pastors' husbands who are in the room now, which is awesome. There's a little support group that's going to start with my husband right there. So pray about it. <coughs> but um, in the back, at our connections table, there are these little um, beautiful pamphlets that they brought with. And afterwards, Trin and Sarah and others will be here so you can come grab one. Every single person here has a role. This is what I mean, okay? So at least, at least you need to pray for these folks because 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, there were people praying for Mill City Church to become a church, and now here we are. So every single one of us can be praying for them, so grab one of these if only to put it somewhere to remember to pray. But inside, there's also some other opportunities of ways that you can support them, including giving financially, but also an Amazon wish list, which is awesome. So they picked out some nice things and, you know, baby showers, weddings, blah, 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 church Amazon wish list. Baby church. Baby church. It's a baby church. It needs some baby church things, not diapers. Right? Yeah, okay. maybe diapers. And then they're going to have preview services that you could come and populate, because I was just telling Trin about how weird it was when this room had like 40 people sitting right here. And also um, being able to send some people their way who you might know and, and even pray yourself. There were people who were willing to leave their community to go start Mill City. And so we know that we've helped to do that with multiple church plants, and this is no exception. We're super excited for all that God is doing through Eden Community. So that's enough of me talking about it for now. Is that all right? Can you welcome one more time, Trin Peterson? <laughs> that was quite the introduction. I mean, usually when I'm talking about Eden Community, I'm passionate like that. So like, I think she like equals my outward passion, so it's awesome. I am very blessed to, to call Stephanie friend. Um, we just kind of got connected through common friends, and then we were like, wow, you're awesome. Ah, we need to be friends. And usually when I say that to people, they're super creeped out. My husband tells me to not tell people that I like them. I think that's something cool. Like, I want to know that you like me. So whatever. I might be socially awkward. I own it. Well, I am super excited to be here today because um, one of the questions we're going to be talking about today is why is the Old Testament still relevant? And why am I so excited about that? Because I am the queen of geeks when it comes to the Old Testament. I love it. I love when, in, when we dig in and see how it connects to the New Testament. We get the entire story of God. And it can be hard and intimidating. And I didn't start off with passion for the Old Testament. I usually would just kind of skip over it because it's hard. And a lot of weird stories killing people with jawbones of donkeys, like, what? But I've been studying the Bible for a long time, 
I'm probably older than I look. And in undergrad, I did in Bible, I went to Bethel Seminary, and I just felt like there was something missing. I needed to understand more deeply the culture that this, is, this story is rooted in. It's a Jewish culture. And then I felt the call of God about a couple years ago to start this cohort journey with 12 strangers. Uh, one is now my associate pastor at Eden. And d- deep dive into Old Testament, Biblical Hebrew, and Jewish context. So we studied under a rabbi. So we're kind of Hebrew, Jewish history scholars in training. And in that experience, it radically changed my life. Because I finally understood what was going on in the beginning, and it informed the revelation of who Jesus is. Really, like what he was saying when he was talking and walking and healing. What, what did he save us from? Because the original intention was right there in Genesis. So this is an important question. We don't know where we're going unless we know where we've been. So in order to do that, last week Stephanie talked about exegesis. So like getting the cultural context, the author, like the original audience. And then she talked about hermeneutics, which is bringing that into what does it mean today. And so a helpful thing when dealing with the Old Testament is to use Jewish exegesis because it's written in Biblical Hebrew. And Biblical Hebrew, a lot of those words mean multiple things. And all of them are always there. It doesn't mean this in this context and this in the next. It means all at once. So some words have five meanings. It's the same word. But we translate it to like five different words. So in order to do this, it's called the four levels of paradise. The first level is peshat, which is the straight, literal, or direct meaning. Like actually just literally what's going on in the story. The second level is the remez, which is the hints, deep allegoric, hidden or symbolic meaning beyond its literal sense. And we can see examples of this because in the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish culture, they named with intention. So people's names, places, and what those actually mean actually are telling and supporting the story. So that's what we mean by symbolic. And darash, which is to inquire, seek, through similar occurrences throughout scripture. So there are some really big rhythms that you see over and over again. Barren women, I mean, all the way from old to new. So there's all these, how can we track those threads? And then sod, which is the mystery or mystical meaning given through inspiration and revelation by God. So we're peeling back these layers. <clears throat> I've had where God actually reveals. It's like this aha moment where you want to jump out of your skin and you're like, <gasps> and then everything kind of clicks. And you start to see the whole trajectory of the story. God does that. That's only when we take the time to peel back the layers. So we're going to start with, well, what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? I recently had some conversations with some folks, and we were talking about the relevance of the Old Testament. And they're like, well, we don't, we don't relate to God that way anymore. That doesn't count. We're under the new covenant. If anything drives me more crazy is the new covenant. Like, guys... There wouldn't be a new covenant if there wasn't the old one. Right? And we wouldn't, like, Jesus needs to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah, and guess where those prophecies are? Old Testament. 
There'd be nothing to fulfill. So how do we not throw out part of it, but how do we look at it as the whole story of God? And what is God trying to, through the story of his story and these people, say to us? So Jesus was preaching Sermon on the Mount, one of his most popular. Like if, any, if I could count how many preachers preach on the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, I'd lose count. This is awesome. But when he was preaching, he says in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know the Pharisees had issues, man. So why is he saying, like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? We knew they were after power. But here's the background. Pharisees in the time, there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. And the rabbinical class actually came from the Pharisees. And they actually believed in a promised Messiah. The Sadducees did not, nor did they believe in an afterlife. So they were actively waiting. The Sadducees were still really political, still grabbed for power, but they were more concerned about that than anything else. And so if, if rabbis came from the Pharisaical sector, Jesus is a rabbi. They would train rabbis. So this is how this is going. And the Pharisees would keep all of the 600, over 613 laws in the Old Testament. Why is he saying this? Because the word law in Hebrew is Torah, and it means teaching of Yah, which is Yahweh, which is the Lord, the one true God. So when we hear law, what do you guys think of? Like judgment, got to follow the rules and walk in a line. I'm not very good at that, you guys. I'm a born rebel, so I'm like, why do we got to walk in this straight line? I want to walk zigzag. My legs aren't straight. But it's not how the early, early church understood what law is. It did get distorted because it turned into traditions that they did, and what they did became more important of why they were doing it. They were doing these laws to be set apart to be a light to the rest of the world. That's the original intent. So they did distort that. But it means teachings of Yah, and the Pharisees, they actually, and the scribes, they spent their life knowing the Torah, because that's all they had. And the Pharisees actually recognized the entire Old Testament, not just the first five books, which is called the Torah, but all of the Old Testament, even the words of the prophets. So if Jesus is saying, I'm not going to throw it out, I'm here to fulfill it, then I think there's something here for us too. Now, in the New, in the Old Testament, there's a really good picture of this, of why does it still matter today? And it's found in the story of Israel. So let's start at the beginning. You guys, have you heard of Moses? 
Yeah? I mean, they made like cartoon of it, Prince of Egypt. You guys remember that? Or am I dating myself? For you younger people, sorry. There was like this big cartoon that came out and told the story of Moses. Moses is this dude. So what was happening in Egypt in the time is the Hebrews were slaves for hundreds of years, and they had replicated so much that they were threatening the Egyptians, or they thought they were a threat. So Pharaoh ordered that every Jewish Hebrew boy would be thrown in the Nile and drowned if they were found to be born to try to control the population. At this time, Moses' mom, to save his life, put him in a little basket and sent him down the Nile and then set his sister to watch to make sure he'd be okay. And who would find Moses in this basket but Pharaoh's sister? And she adopted him as her son. So this Hebrew boy became a prince of Egypt, like the movie. And through this lifetime, he grows up having everything he wants. In that time, Egypt was the biggest, baddest empire ever. Prosperous. They had the Nile. I mean, they worshiped Pharaoh as God. So he's growing up in this, and then he finds out that he's not actually an Egyptian. He's, in fact, Hebrew, like the slaves. And he's out walking, and he sees one of them, one of the Egyptians, beating on a Hebrew. And he becomes enraged, and he actually slays the Egyptian and hides his body. Pharaoh finds out and tries to kill him, and he flees to Midian. He's in exile. He's a murdering exilee, if that's a word, I'm making it up. So here he is sitting, he's shepherding, he marries, has kids, and he's in the wilderness with his sheep, chilling. And the wilderness in Israel sucks. Been there, cold in the morning, hot, cold, I mean, it's stuck. That's why they whine so much. So here we are, he's walking, and this bush lights on fire. Now, Yes, our flannel graphs tell us that this is miraculous, but I hate to, like, blow it, but it's not. It's hot in the desert, and it's normal for this type of bush to actually flame out and then reseed and grow others. But what's interesting is he looks, and this bush is not being consumed. So he's like, I'm going to go check this out. Like, what is going on? You know, sheep are over here, ah. And he goes over to the bush, and he's like, and he hears God. <laughs> that would be a little scary. And God is telling him to go back to the land in which he is a criminal and free his people because he's heard their cries. They have now been slaves for 400 years, crying out to God. And he was like, what? You? No, you got the wrong guy. He even runs. And God's like, Moses, come, come here come here, you, yes, you, and I'm going to give you your buddy Aaron, and he's going to help you on this journey. So they actually go to Egypt, confront Pharaoh, who knows him. They know who he is. And he's old at this time. He's not a young, strapping man. And he says, let the people go from worshiping you to worshiping God. 
and Pharaoh, they have this, they have ten plagues. He performs these miraculous ten plagues, is what they call. And then finally, Pharaoh's like, fine, get out. You're going to kill us all. And he says, go, take them all. And this is not a few hundred people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And not only Hebrews leave, some of the Egyptians leave too, because they're like, did you see those plagues? Their God is a God. And I think I'm going to go serve him instead. So it says mixed multitudes left Egypt. And they're leaving, and they come backed up to the Red Sea. Well, then Pharaoh gets all puffy and is like, well, I want my slaves back. Sends the army out to go get them. And the, the Hebrews are like, what have you done to us, Moses? We're going to die. And Moses lifts his staff and parts the Red Sea, and they cross it. And after the last Hebrew crosses, it closes and drowns the Egyptians. And they, this is the story that God has delivered them. They've seen all these miraculous things. The sea is parted. And they're wandering around where? Does anybody know? The wilderness. It's hot and cold in the morning, freezing, hot in the afternoon. You're at the will of nature. You are not in control. They have limited food and supplies. And they're like, well, we're free, but this kind of stinks. Now what? But God takes care of them. He provides manna for them to eat every day. Just is there when they wake up. And this is the third month that they've been wandering around in the wilderness. They gather at Mount Sinai. And God is like a thick cloud over this big mountain. And Moses, this is right before they get the Ten Commandments, and Moses goes up the mountain, and God says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, God, before he gives them the Ten Commandments, tells them who they are and how they are to be in relationship with him. So this word obey does not exist in biblical Hebrew. We love it in English. But in biblical Hebrew, it's actually the word shema, which means to hear. So a better translation of this would be to hear in my voice. And then keep my covenant, this word keep, is the word shamar, which actually means to guard or tend. It's the same word we are given in the Old Testament, Genesis, when we're in the garden, we are to shamar it, to guard and tend it. So what does this mean, that we need to hear in God's voice and keep, guard, tend his covenant? That's not so dry. It's not do all these rules and you will have acceptance. It's very interactional. Hear in God's voice, that means you have to be so close to God that you are even hearing the inflections in his voice and how he's saying things, his intention. It's almost like being in the womb of a woman when you're a baby. Babies know the voice of their mother before they're even born. And it's funny because the Hebrew word for God's spirit is ruach, and it comes from the root to womb. 
And God breathed the spirit of himself into us in humanity, and we became nefesh hayah, a living soul. So there's a piece of us that actually yearns to hear the voice of Yah in him. That's intimate. That's not a God who's sitting on a thing going, y'all are dumb, you dumb, again, and I'm going to send all these things to teach you a lesson. He's much more relational than that. So what does it mean to hear in God's voice? What does it mean to keep guard tend the covenant? What does it mean to shamar Jesus' salvation to us? Because Jesus is the full revelation of the salvation of God. God's always been in the saving business. And so here these people are said, this is how close I want you to me. And all these words are verbs. So it's not like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch from here. Praise you, Jesus. It's not a spectator sport, because God, all of God's names, which there are many, again, our English language doesn't always translate them, are all verbs. And these are verbs. Salvation is actually a verb. And we are verbs. Moving, action, live it out. Jesus is Yeshua, the salvation of Yah. And what did he do? Moved, healed brought the good news of the gospel. So what is their role? God says, here, here's what I want from you. I want to be close. They're to be priests. So the priest's job down the road would be to make offerings and keep the people connected to God. So they are to be a priest of nations. So their job is to keep the nations connected to God. Now they kind of screwed this up and became exclusionary, right? Like, I am Jewish and better than you because I'm the chosen people of God. We don't see that today, do we? And they kind of screw it up. But God keeps working with them. He doesn't give up on his people. We are invited into this God's restorative work. We have a role to do, a job to fill, to work with him side by side. I'm telling you that verb thing is just going to get us till we die. So what does it mean to be Israel? He's pulling these people together. You are a priestly nation. You are Israel. So let's go to the Remez. Let's look at some of these names and what they mean. Do they support the story? Israel means those who wrestle with God and people but are able. Mm, that is verby, isn't it? So God wants us to wrestle with them? Ha! Ah! And you know we're going to wrestle with other people because sometimes I need to pray to love. This is real. It's relationship. The people of God is to be interacting with each other and with God. So as I'm studying this with my rabbi, right, I feel this pull to Israel. I'm like, but that can't possibly be for me, rabbi, because, you know, you're Jewish and, like, the real type have family in Israel, you know? You're the real, real deal. And he kind of looked at me and smiled and was like, 
Is Israel a nationality? Yes. But spiritually speaking, Scripture's saying something different. The call to be Israel is the call to be the people of God, and that is open to everyone. And I was like, it was like my mind went, like I had the permission to be like, Israel. Because I'd already felt a pull. But I didn't want to offend anybody. But as I discovered this, this call to community, call to God. So Egypt, it actually means narrow place in the Hebrew. It's topographically narrow. It's spiritually narrow because when you live there, you've got to worship the Egyptian gods and Pharaoh as God. And to be an Egyptian is to be a narrow placer. It's true. And to be a Hebrew is to means to cross over. Are you guys picking this up? What did they do? They crossed. And Moses' name, this is the best, is means to draw out. <laughs> what did he do? He drew out the entire nation of Israel from worshiping Pharaoh to worshiping Yahweh. He is living his name. These are not accidents. This happens all the time in Scripture. We just don't see it. And the wilderness is the Hebrew word midbar. And the root of that actually means uh, to speak and mouth. And the idea behind this is the wilderness, and you can see this all throughout Scripture where people run to the wilderness, is the place where God speaks. And they're in the wilderness, and God's providing food for them miraculously every day. He is telling them, you are my people. He is trying to train their deaf ears to hear them, to hear him. I've been here. Woo! So can we relate with this journey of being called a people of God and this journey from going from a narrow place to wilderness where it sucks because you are not in control. When the floods happen, guess what? Your tent is wet. What are you sitting in? Water. It makes you mad. They were whiny. I get it. Can we relate to this? Yeah. So, about a year ago, God started stirring in my heart. I knew I was going to be I called to be a lead pastor. And I was like, oh, maybe it's in a church that's already set up. I really don't want to be a church planner because that stuff is hard. And it was actually in this cohort in a study of Moses, because Moses haunts me, so does David, that I realized God's like, I've called you to plant a church. And I was like, oh. I was not doing this, woo! No, I was like impending doom. Because I knew the weightiness of what God is asking me to do. And I did exactly what Moses did. Dude, you got the wrong girl. I'm like, I'm the wrong gender and the wrong color and like a lot of colors. And like, <laughs> and I am so not formal. I regularly confuse people because they're like, I expect you to be this way, but you are so not. 
And I ran, trying to run, but it just, I couldn't. Till I surrendered into the call. So I had to leave. Like, I was in a worship, creative arts pastor, and youth pastor. They would have given me any title as I grew into it. They were like, we love you. Stay here forever. And I loved the people. And I'd worked my whole, like, whole career to get here. And now God was telling me to leave everything, not sure I'd have a paycheck, not sure where the money was coming from to plant this church, trying to figure out who's my tribe that I'm going to plant with. And I'm like, you want me to leave everything? I got two young kids, three and five. Yes, ugh, you can do that for me. And every time I'd come home, I'd look at those faces and I'd go, but I have to provide for them. And God was, going, God was working in my heart that you were doing this for the sake of them and for the sake of others. So I left. I stepped out. We created a transition plan. And then it came time for me to fully step out. And uh, did I have a paycheck, y'all? Guess what happened? People we know stepped up and paid my salary out of their personal pockets for two months till I signed with the covenant. That's some manna in the wilderness, trusting God. And then churches started supporting us, my home church, because we weren't the same denomination. I wasn't even sure they were going to support us. I asked them, oh, by the way, I want you to support us, be a parent church. And while you think about it, I'm going to go to Israel, okay? I'll be back in two weeks. And they were freaking out. We're behind. We're $40,000 behind on our budget. We're at the end of the fiscal year. We can't do it. We, we love you, but I don't know if we can do this. And I came back, and you know what the response was? We support you 100%. And we're going to give you the full of what you asked, and we're going to parent this, because this is a call on us to step out in faith. go back here and freak out a little bit because I didn't think that was going to be what the answer was. <laughs> when we take risks, God shows up. And man, I have never been so close to God and never been driven to my knees more than right now. We haven't even started yet and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I have my Moses moments. So are there narrow places in your life? A narrow place doesn't necessarily always mean bad. It just means it starts to feel tight. And God is using that to go, okay, time for something else. And it felt tight. Like the following months up to this, I was like, oh, what is this? Because I needed to leave. God had something else to expand his kingdom. So let's go to the Duresh. Is this in the New Testament? Can we find this in the New Testament? Because you know that rhythm, right? All about rhythms. Yes, it is, because the Bible is that cool. And it's almost word for word. And he did, Peter did this on purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you know who Peter's telling this to? Gentile Christians in Asia Minor. The call is for everyone. And he is, he is linking them back to the promise that God gave his people way back, Mount Sinai, in Exodus, when they were freed. And they were a mixed multitude then. The gates are open. They've always been open. And this Peter, 1 Peter verse, is actually Eden Community Zara verse, which means root verse. Because we believe so much in this principle of what it means to be a people of God that not only you know God individually, but then we come together as a people. Because when the fall happened and sin came in, it not only wrecked our intimacy with God, but it blocked us from each other. The original intent was unashamed, naked, not hiding anything, in a garden, in direct communion with God and one another, and being vulnerable and open. And that means with each other, too. And it's hard. So God's restorative plan is not just individual. It doesn't just stop there. It's always in the sense of community. Yes, this is my personal story. God has delivered me for the sake of the community. How do I plug in to the people of God? What I have is not just for me. My story is not mine. It is owned by the people that I love and share and do life with and anybody else who wants it. If it helps, take it. That's what it means to be the people of God. So a funny thing, during Passover, Jewish people remember the passing over that God did when they were right before they were delivered from Egypt, the death of the firstborns. And it's funny because they remember that as being described as a call from darkness into great light. So Peter's linking us to all sorts of things. You just can't separate the story. And Jesus came to fulfill and uphold this because God has always cared about you, always will care about you, and has. He has saved us, is saving us, will continue to save us. So I encourage you guys to think about why is the Old Testament still relevant to me? Are there narrow places? Am I in a wilderness that really stinks? And the challenge in the wilderness is to hear in the voice of God? What does it mean to tend and keep God's covenant to me? Because Peter saw that the Gentiles were actually invited into the covenant of Israel. And Jesus is the full revelation of that. It's for all of us. So is the Old Testament still relevant? Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> Abba Father, we just come to you with open hearts and open hands, God. Reveal to us 
what you want us to see about your word and about yourself and about your character. See where we can learn from the story of Israel and your story and who you are. Help us dive deeper into who your character is and who you are to us. Help us come into closer proximity of you. And for those who are struggling, because we all struggle, help us try to hear that you are always speaking. And it's okay to scream and want to throw up your fists. I just pray that we can do that to you, that we can say how frustrated we are we can tell you how frustrated we are, and you are not intimidated, but that we open up a conversation with you. Just thank you that you are a God who wrestles with us, doesn't let us go, and has called you your own, has called us your own. So we just thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. And I just pray a blessing over all of you today. May your heart, your mind, your eyes be filled with the wonder of what it means that every page of God's story is about this Yahweh God who so deeply loves you, who deeply loves your family, this community, the communities represented here. And may out of that knowledge, that awareness, that relationship, you step into the kingdom opportunities that God places around us every single day. May you know you're not alone. May you know the God of all of these pages, of all of these languages, of all of these nations is intimately with you, yet is the God of the universe. May that open up your eyes in wonder. And may you go from this place stepping into that reality.